0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the show. Wow, we've got some great things planned for you today. I've got a special guest joining me later in the hour. It is Kevin Carmichael. And um, we're going to be talking about some interesting things in the real estate market. Here's what he says There's three faces of Canada's increasingly strange housing market recently written about it in Canadian business. And he's going to be joining us later in the hour. And we're going to be talking about this because I would have to agree agree with this article, and we're going to look in depth at what markets are doing well, which ones we should be a little bit cautious of, and of course, the ones that have flatlined and have no pulse. It's going to happen, and it is happening right now, but before I get into that, how about we talk about some recent events that have happened over the last few weeks here in Toronto. For those of you that know of Airbnb, this is a company that allows you to be able to go with your unit or home or some form of residence and you can do a short-term rental. People go online if they're coming into Toronto instead of spending the big bucks at a hotel they can actually rent your property. Well recently there was an interesting event that happened. There was a gang that decided to rent a condominium in a very nice building up near Front Street. And what ended up happening was they wanted to get together, everybody have a bit of a party, and a rival gang showed up. Shots were fired, people were kidnapped, charges are laid. And at the end of the day, who do you blame? Well, you can't blame Airbnb because this has nothing to do with them. You know what? Violence, destruction, everything like this happens Every single day here in a city like Toronto, it's got nothing to do with a company like this. But everybody wants to point fingers saying, is this safe? Can this turn around and continue in our building? Can it continue in our neighbourhood? Again, these are the situations that will happen no matter what. Listen, what happened if it was just their friend? What if the friend owned the condominium and they decide to have a party? Would it had the same result? Of course it would. But I want to break down some of the things that people need to know about short-term rentals. You know, this is one of those things that everybody's starting to lick their chops because they think that they're going to be making more money when they do short-term rentals. So let's break it down. With most of these places, people are spending anywhere from $100 to $200 a night, where if you're staying in a hotel, probably three or $400 for the same comparative kind of style or location. But here's the thing. When you take a look at it, you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to take my condominium, I'm going to do a short-term rental, and I'm only talking about the one or two nights in a row. We're not going to the executive rental yet. We'll get to that in a minute. But if we do this and we start having people turn and burn is what I call it, wear and tear... We start seeing the destruction of the property. It's not necessarily they're coming in, kicking in your walls, but they come in and out, in and out. They use the amenities in the building. They're harder on it. There's more wear and tear. Sooner or later, you're going to have to start repairing things. Again, people won't treat your home as you do. It's a rental. They can do whatever they want in their mindset. It's not like they're sitting there saying, oh, I made a mark on the wall. Here, let's get the can of paint and fix it up before we leave. So this is what's going to end up happening. A lot of wear and tear starts happening on your own personal residence, or if it's a rental for yourselves, you're going to have to keep fixing it up. You know... It comes to mind when I start talking about this kind of stuff, I think of some of those rentals that we have up in Collingwood. And a lot of people bought townhomes up in the Collingwood Blue Mountain area thinking that they're going to use it a couple times a year themselves, and then they're going to rent them out the rest of the time. Do you know that most of these people are paying 50% of the rental income for wear and tear every year to the management company? It is an absolute loser when you are looking at an investment property because of the wear and tear. Now, think about it. When we turn around and we've got you know, people coming in in the winter in their ski boots, and by the way, they have a little note at the door saying, make sure you remove your ski boots. Well, as you go sailing by that, skidding through the front foyer with your ski boots on, catch up to the carpet and wear it out on the way through to the kitchen, you know, people aren't doing it uh, with a negative approach. It just happens naturally. They don't take their ski boots off until they get in. They've just come off the hill, you know. And again, I don't know for most of you if you have gone up and done the après ski. I have to tell you, it can be a lot of fun. And après ski normally means some kind of food and alcohol kicking around. And if you get enough people doing that, there's going to be a few spills here and there, a few things broken. And at the end of the day, guess what happens to your rental? It costs you more money. So yes, you can turn around on short-term rentals and make really good, quick money. But the long-term effect is that you're going to be doing a lot of repairs, and repairs become expensive. And this is one of those things that we have to keep in mind whenever we are doing an investment property, a rental property. It was interesting because I was talking to my uh, my producer, George, a little bit earlier about this. And, um, you know, coming up in the next segment, by the way, when you want to buy a property for renovation, you know what? You should probably have a list of things that you should do to the property that are going to give you a good return. Uh, you know, if any of you come to my seminar, you'll know that when somebody says to me, "Hey, Todd, should we put in granite countertops?" You know, there should be a big X. You know, I wish I had that power when you know when you watch Family Feud and you hear that. Meh. Well, you know what? That for sure. When people say in a rental property have that kind of stuff, bad return. But when we take a look at short-term rentals, there's a lot of people that are sitting there saying, "Hey, why don't we go to an executive rental?" Now, executive rental normally is again a short-term rental. It could be one month, three. Three months, six months. When you when you think executive, you naturally you know see this gentleman coming in in a suit. Company you know drops car, company car drops him off. Comes in a suit, you know everything's going to be great. Well. A lot of times, people will rent in an area for a short term, three months, six months, to see if, first of all, they want to live there. Second of all, they could be a transfer in from a company. Maybe they're just a short-term contractor coming in. And instead of renting a hotel every single day, what they do is they allow people to come in on an executive rental. Now, the positive about executive rentals is that you do get a higher rent rate because they're fully furnished. They're fully stocked. You have all the linens. You have your towels. You know, it's basically you walk in. It's completely... Complete, you're ready to go. Now, here's the problem with this though, is that you have to invest in all the furniture, all the amenities, everything that's necessary. And on top of that, you can have bigger vacancies. So You may get it rented out for six months, and then you may not have it rented out for another six months, and this is the kind of stuff that you have to be cautious with. Vacancies cost dearly, and they affect your bottom line. So maybe you're getting $1,000 more a month than the standard unit in the marketplace, but if you're only renting it for six months of the year, you're actually going to end up losing. Remember, high expenditure, so you've got to put in decent furniture. You can't use your mom's old sofa that she had in the basement for an executive rental. You know, if somebody's going to be paying you $35,000 to $4,000 a month, you've got to make sure that it's sharp, clean, new. You know, you can't have that, again, that old basement couch in there for an executive rental. Keep this in mind when you're thinking of doing this. There's a lot of people out there that are trying to sell product and say, hey, why don't you get an executive rental? You get $4,000 a month rent. Right. But remember the cost. Costs matter here, and so does wear and tear. Whenever you turn over a property, you normally have to do a full cleaning, sometimes paint, repair of damage. So is it not better to keep somebody in for a long time? I think so. And you know what? If you come to our Simple Seminar, by the way, the next one coming up on May the 26th, you can go to the simpleinvestor.com to register today. We talk about tenants and who makes the best tenant. Now, again, when we take a look at what's going on in the market, we've seen some interesting things recently in the rental market. And one of the ones was that we started to see a little bit of bidding wars. In fact, the rent prices have gone up over the last few months. You'd say, hey... That's awesome. I should go buy a rental property. Well, let me work some numbers backward before you jump into the mix. Right now, in Toronto, they're saying a one-bedroom is getting about $1,600 a month rent. Well, if you take the square footage price and you start doing the math backwards, and we're pretty much looking at something around $350,000, almost $380,000 when you buy it, and you put your typical 20% down on that, your carrying costs with property taxes, maintenance fee, insurance, and mortgage, your carrying costs are coming in around nineteen and yet you're getting 1600 You know what that says to me? You're a non-profit organization and you don't want to be out there subsidizing your tenant. That's a bad business move. But there is a positive here because the rent control is not on the brand new condominiums. They're a little bit stagnant when they're going up in value as far as the month-to-month rents with one-bedrooms going up 4.8%. The biggest jump we did see is in the two-bedroom market. The two bedrooms went up 8.9% in the last little while. Now, that's a pretty good number and I'm impressed by that one. But the problem is is that if you're going to be buying a two bedroom today in this marketplace, you're going to be spending a big dollar, up to $500,000 to get a decent two bedroom. If we break down the math on that, you've got a $400,000 mortgage. When we're looking at rents around $22 to $2300, you may come close to breaking even, but you're still probably negative about $100 to $200, and yet you've got 100,000 out there. Does this make sense? Well, listen, A little bit later in the hour, I'm going to be talking to you about what I think is going to happen with the market in the condominium market. Where are the numbers going to go? Because this is one of those things that a lot of people that are out there speculating, buying brand new properties, you need to know. Now, the one thing that we did see, and it had a very minimal increase was the three bedrooms. First and foremost, there's not very many of them out in the marketplace right now. So we don't see very many rentals just because there's not very many out there to rent. But here's the screaming part of it. they're twenty seven hundred dollars per month, but if you're getting a three bedroom unit, you're up almost in around seven to eight. At $2,700, again, you are losing money. So is the brand new condominium market a good place for you to put your money? Well, you know what? It depends. If you're that sure on speculation that it's going to have this redeeming quality that's going to go through the roof in the near in the near future, maybe it's a good idea. But if not, you know what? I always will tell you this: go to the outer markets. This is where you're gonna find better deals and definitely better cash flow. So, as I said, later we're gonna be joined by Kevin Carmichael. We're gonna be talking about the varying markets here in Canada and coming up after the break. I'm going to be having a little chat with my producer. We're going to try to break down a list that makes sense for you when you're going to be renovating to flip or renovating to hold. So, you're listening to Simply Real Estate. I'm your host, Todd Z. Slater. I'll be right back. And welcome back. Hey, you know one of the things that people talk to me all the time is about buying fixer uppers. And there's this, I hate to say it, but there's this delusion that you're going to get this incredible deal if the property needs you know, some work, or for that matter, if it's a power sale. For years and years and years, I used to work with all the banks doing their power sales. And everybody said, hey, if I buy a power sale, do I get it for what's outstanding on the mortgage? And not a chance. By law, they have to sell the property at market value. And And here's partially what they do. When we had to analyze a property, we'd have to go in, take a look at it, and if that house was selling in good condition down the street for $500,000, but it needed $50,000 worth of work, guess what you could buy it for? $450,000. So a lot of these renovators end up buying themselves a job, okay? And this is where, if you're going to hop into this, know what you're doing. Make sure you get a price list put together. I always tell people, go for a walk through Home Depot and no pricing on everything. And when I was talking to my producer, George, about this, George said, hey, Todd, why don't we do a segment and have, you know, a little, a few questions out there that, you know, what should we do? And so, George, you got a few that you were asking me and you, uh, you wanted to talk about it because it makes sense. If you're going to buy something that you're going to fix up, we need to talk about it. And hey, listen, your uncle is also uh, a contractor. So, you know, I'm pretty sure you've seen this kind of stuff so what do you think I was always wondering if I'm gonna sell a house and I want to put $50,000 into it where do I put it I've like I venture a guess to say I wouldn't want to fix the basement I doubt that it's got a high return on investment but things like kitchen landscaping, I would think that that would be a good value. Okay. So if we're talking about a property that's in really bad shape and you buy it, so let's talk, you know, the old wartime bungalows, some of the stuff that's out there. And again, these folks, these aren't the knockdowns. We're not going to be knocking this down, right, George? We're going to keep the same structure, yep. but we're going to renovate it. All right. First and foremost, if you're going to buy something, make sure you buy something with absolutely no renovations done at all okay? Because if you're doing a flip, if you're trying to get a return on that 50K, so let's use that as our budget, okay, everyone? We're going to use $50,000 as our budget. Where can we best spend this? Now, when we look at the property, of course, there's going to be a couple of the main issues that we need to talk about first. First is furnace, okay? We need our heat source. So George, one of the things I'd tell you is make sure that furnace, you know, that's one of the things you're going to get ripped out. You're going to pop a new one in. Normally, if it's a smaller home, we're looking at about $3,000 to $4,000, okay? Brand new, high efficiency, furnace, you're all set. Now, the next thing though, of course, is the roof. Okay, now you had mentioned that to me earlier, right? Yep. Okay, so roofs are one of those things that if you have a home inspection, if as long as the home inspector doesn't fall through the roof, (laughs) and I've seen that happen in the past, what you want to do is you want to make sure that the roof is solid. Now, when you get the home inspector to go up and take a look at it, also look in the attic, because this is where you could find some hidden moisture, which is going to create mold. So again, we want to get to a nice, clean, dry home. So we're going to spend some money on a roof. And depending on the size of the home, George, that's going to vary probably, between five and ten thousand dollars just so you know. So so far we've probably spent give a take okay and we'll, we'll keep it on the low side we spent 10 grand. we got 40k left. what do you think? That's great. okay now the other thing a lot of times people need to talk about are Windows. Now here's the problem. we could blow almost the entire budget on Windows. So what you want to do is you want to take a look at how cost effectively you can do Windows. You can do Windows in an entire house for ten thousand dollars. Okay. Again, it depends if you're the one doing the labor. Okay. And you can go direct to some of the manufacturers. And this is what I'm going to recommend everybody do. Save some money where possible. If you're going to, if you're going to have a contractor come in, do some of the removal of things yourself. Okay. Save some money that way. Elbow grease is one definite way to make equity in a property. So let's take a look and say, what do we want to do aesthetically? Now, The most important thing, and even if you had a $5,000 budget, paint, no matter what. Paint the ceilings. Go in, start painting the ceilings. Folks, rent a paint sprayer. Yeah, it's fun. You're going to come out looking like Casper the Friendly Ghost when you're done doing it. But ultimately, in the end, spend the money on the paint. Because if you go in, you put brand new fresh ceiling light on all your ceilings. Who knows if the house was a smoker, you know, there's always going to be yellowing, everything. So everybody looks up. As soon as people walk up, they look and say, because they're looking for stains in the ceilings, they want to find out if something's gone wrong in the roof. A great time to cover up the stains from the old roof. Okay, so we, we put a primer on there. They call it kilts. Get rid of the stains. The next step, of course, is painting the walls. The best advice I can give you is go to a nice... Warm, kind of neutral, taupey color. You know, it's earthy. People like it. It's fresh. And of course, white trim. Always, always white baseboards, white door frames, white doors. Always keep it consistent throughout the entire house. Remember, George, we're flipping this one, are we? Yep. Okay, so we want to get the best return out of 50K. No problem. All right. So now we know that paint is going to be a big part of this. Hopefully, it's still got the old shag carpet. Okay, because that means you didn't pay for new flooring, and we're going to rip that out. Now, there is some wonderful stuff out there called laminate floors. Okay, they're click. You can buy what they call a 12-mil floor. They're easy to install. But before you install any floor, I want you to go out and I want you to buy 2,000 screws, and I want you to walk around with a screw gun and screw down all your floors. Nothing worse than having squeaky floors. I missed on that one when uh, when my fiancé and I just moved into our new place. We put new carpet in, but I didn't get ahead of the carpet guys. And the floors are squeaking. I'm going to rip up the carpet. It drives me nuts. So if you're going into a property that you've renovated, make sure you screw down the floors. Now, of course, so let's talk about floors. Laminate floor, you know what? Laminate can go in kitchens. It can go in the living room, dining room, no problem. Family room, awesome stuff. Easy to put down. You don't have to pay somebody to do it. You can do it yourself. Now, of course, if you're going to do tile, you can do that. But let's renovate a bathroom because renovating a bathroom is not that expensive. You don't have to change the tub. You can hire a bathtub king or one of those companies out there. It's $350 to $500 to spray a tub. It looks brand new. You can put a tub surround in, $100 to $300 at Home Depot. So now you don't have to worry about the tiles. A new vanity, a couple hundred dollars. A new toilet, not very much. And boom, all of a sudden you've got something brand new. Now, if you don't want to spend the money on a brand new kitchen, you can turn around and put melamine on the cabinets, okay? You take them off, you paint them nice, make them nice and fresh, put in a new countertop, not granite, new sink, faucet, make it nice and neat and tidy, but the countertops are important always the bedrooms you know what best thing you do berber carpet good underpad make sure you've got some nice clean doors on there if the doors don't look right go buy them they're $25 a piece it's really inexpensive your basic number right now george we've probably only spent about 35 to 40 grand for that much of a renovation if you had to replace the kitchen you go to ikea $10,000 you get a great kitchen okay now you're set to sell You know what? You're not only going to get your 50 back, you'll probably double it, okay? So that, if we bought this house at 450, we put 50 into it, the chances are at 550. Don't forget about a little bit of landscaping, clean it up outside, make it nice and neat, get some mulch in the gardens, get some nice flowers, and you're good to go. There's your basic thing. Hey folks, when we come back, I have a very special guest joining me, Kevin Carmichael. We're going to be talking about our market, so stay with us. We'll be right back. And welcome back. As I promised earlier, you know, I've got a special guest joining me today, and I have to tell you, he had written an article for Canadian Business, and it was one of those ones that resonated really well with me because, you know, I've been talking about the market in real estate in Canada, locally here in Toronto, and, you know, personally, I think we've got a bit of a split market in Toronto. I've always said that the detached market is completely different than the condominium market, but more importantly, when we talk about the Bank of Canada and some of the things that they need to keep their eyes on obviously, are the independent markets out there. And uh, so joining me today is my special guest, and it is Kevin Carmichael, and he's a columnist for Canadian Business. And uh, welcome to Simply Real Estate, Kevin.
1: Happy to be here, Todd.
0: Thank you so much. You know, we, I really appreciate you joining me today because you wrote an article recently, and I have to tell you, I was very impressed by it. And, you know, the, the title to it, you know, the three faces of Canada's increasingly strange housing market. Housing has been split three ways in Canada, bubbly in Toronto and Vancouver, decline in the oil patch, and normal everywhere else. You know what, I, I would have to agree. And, you know, what, what really motivated you to, to write this article, and, and where do you see things going?
1: Um, all right. The motivation, um, I think is it, it, I think the, the more we can talk about um, the way that what or the, the, the market that we're seeing develop here in Canada versus what we saw develop in the U.S. sort of 2006, 2007, um, uh, the, the more we talk about that, the more we talk about the differences between those two markets, the better I think we're going to be able to inform whatever policy or whatever approaches we take to uh, to trying to ensure we avoid the uh, worst case scenarios and and what we're seeing in Canada is, is quite different than what went on in the US. Uh, there really is as you as you just mentioned there's sort of a, at least three uh, uh different sort of faces to this Canadian housing market unlike the US which was really a unique a unique situation where where local conditions just sort of spread throughout the country and you really did for perhaps uh, one of the rare times in history to see a, a national sort of housing market that, uh, that, that blew, up in our, blew up in our faces, as, as of course we all know too well.
0: Yeah. You know, one, one of the things, obviously, you know, if, I don't know if you were a part of real estate at that time or you're watching, you know, from the, from the seat. But I, I have to tell you, watching it, when I was looking at the U.S. market and when I was watching the increase, not so much in values, because the values were going up, but not staggeringly. What we saw, though, was the fact that the debt was being leveraged so heavily with absolutely no safeguards in place. And when lenders start telling people, listen, we know you'll catch up in a year or two, so we're going to give you more money. So when they're, you know, over 100% financing, when they're sitting at 120, 130% financing, you know, that's a real speculation. And of course, we know what happened in 2008, when everything imploded. You know, you, you, you touched on the fact that we have a huge difference in Canada. For our listeners sake, you know, can you can you touch on a few of those points?
1: Sure. Um, so, I actually I, I was in the U.S. at that time, uh, working there as a, as a journalist and uh, spending time covering the the U.S. administration. And uh, one of the reasons they got in trouble is because they did hold to this idea that housing markets were local. So, any time anybody talked about the, the possibility of a national housing bus, they they were dismissive of it. They just they said they said, you know, this can't happen. Uh, these are yes, we've got some hot markets, because these are all being driven by various local conditions. So there's nothing that we can do uh, on a national level to um, to 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 cool things off or uh, more to prevent the worst. Um, so you know, so what we are seeing in Canada is is in fact probably what the the Americans saw they were seeing back at that time, back in 2002, uh, 2006, 2007. When we do have markets being driven by local conditions, and you you and your readers or your listeners, sorry, will be. Well aware of the conditions that are are are, are driving the Toronto market, uh, they're seeing a similar, I guess, though exaggerated situation in Vancouver. There is that sort of mix of low interest rates, extreme demand, uh, international money flowing in. There, there, there are reasons that, they, that the prices in Toronto and in Vancouver are are where they are. Um, in the oil patch obviously I mean we've had uh, extreme uh, economic hardship in those places and the housing market is responding as you would expect that prices are coming down um, where uh, interest rates are are, are low uh, boring costs are low that's providing a, providing a cushion uh, probably staving off what uh, what could be a, a mass sort of uh, Foreclosure situation in in markets like like Calgary and perhaps in Saskatchewan and some other places, and then uh, otherwise you have the sort of housing market that you would expect associated with an, an economy that's just sort of. Um, sputtering, if you want to say so, sort to of, sort of like muddling along um places like montreal the uh the East coast, for example i mean there 's uh, the, the, the 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 markets there have have come back to uh to a point where i don 't think uh anybody in Ottawa who's paying attention to these situations is going to be particularly concerned about what 's happening in most of these markets across the country, so when we talk about uh Housing risks in Canada. We really are now talking about Toronto and Vancouver.
0: Well, you know, Kevin, one of the, one of the things that and, and you addressed it in your article, but of course, what you've just mentioned. When we talk about the the decrease, obviously in the Calgary, Alberta, Saskatchewan market, you know, the oil the oil belt there. When we look at that marketplace, if anything, this might actually help the Canadian market by a little bit of softening there. You know, we're taking the heat out of kind of like the middle part of the market. And if that does happen, and again, you, 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 know, you, you put it perfectly, there is a bit of a soft landing because of interest rates. But ultimately, in the end, if we stayed hot right across nationally, I think we'd have a problem. But because we've got the ones that are lagging, such as the Montreal, you know, Montreal the eastern provinces, uh, so for us, you know, there's only a couple of hot major markets, which, of course, have become world-class markets. And I think, I think we can recognize the fact that that's also helped drive the price here.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's true um i think uh you know so i i I sort of come at this from a macroeconomic level. I spend most of my time running about sort of uh running about these things from a from a national perspective and um as I, you know you'll be aware uh there's lots of talk that uh that the Bank of canada in 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 many ways is responsible for a lot of what we were seeing in in the Canadian housing market for these past few years with its ultra low boring rates. And so, you know, uh, the, the reaction to that, that narrative, that idea is that if we're going to do something about this, well, the Bank of Canada needs to obviously raise interest rates. And I think um, the, the central bank always pushed, it, pushed back against that. Um, they weren't sure that that was really the right course, though they admitted uh, for a while that, uh, that you know, we'll, we'll have to see maybe we would reach that point where uh, where higher interest rates would be necessary to... To address this issue, but I think the data is starting to show us that, um, that in fact, we are talking about local conditions here, and what that means is the Bank of Canada does not, in fact, have to raise interest rates simply to uh, avoid a financial crisis uh, stoked by, by, a, by a Canadian housing bubble. The Bank of Canada is not going to uh, take it upon itself to cool the markets in in Vancouver or Toronto, its its mission is to is to support the entire uh, the entire Canadian economy. So, so I mean, I guess what, um, what what's starting to come clear, at least um, in my assessment of the situation, is anybody worrying about uh, housing prices and, and and calling on the Bank of Canada to do something about it is is going to be disappointed. I think the Bank of Canada is is uh, sort of um, is is has uh, assessed the situation and telling us. Um, uh... Subtly that uh... you know that you know they're going to be looking at the the macroeconomic picture and that uh... Housing prices in a few local markets are going to be an issue for local authorities to deal with.
0: Right. So, you know, I think I think to to kind of recap for our listeners and and from what you're saying, and, I, and I'm going to agree wholeheartedly with you is the fact that I think I think our rates are going to stay kind of pat for a little while. I think we're still going to see some strength in the Vancouver and Toronto market. You know, there's a big there's a big draw to it. You know, we don't have a lot of inventory, so of course this is going to this is going to help that. And then in the end, I think that we see a lot of markets that are very. Very flat, you know, um, throughout the rest of the country, and so this, this, if anything, will keep the entire market from overheating.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, um, precisely. You no, know, I think the, the the overall the economic conditions in in most places of the country um, are going to push against any overheating in the housing market um, for, for for most for most people for most cities and. Uh, you know, again as we keep talking about, there are there are special circumstances in in Toronto and, and Vancouver that, that have to do with demand, have to do with supply, um, unique conditions like um international money flowing in, these sorts of things. So you know, I think um, that's what sort of caught my attention in recent weeks that uh, that we really are talking about local situations here.
0: Yeah, excellent. Well, Kevin, listen, I appreciate you joining us today, uh, folks. Kevin Carmichael, uh, columnist at uh, Canadian Business, and uh, would love to have you on again sometime. And and we really appreciate you, uh, to, you know, coming on Simply Real Estate.
1: Anytime. Happy to be here.
0: Thank you so much. So, folks, when we come back after the break, we're going to be talking about the condominium market, what to buy and what not to buy, and where's the market going. So stay with us. We'll be right back. And welcome back. Hey, listen, I want to thank Kevin Carmichael for joining us. Um, You know, when we have a a contributor like that, you know, he's a columnist with Canadian business. You know, he does study the macroeconomics of the economies. Uh, He was in the U.S. when it collapsed, which is an interesting thing because he got a good firsthand take of it, watching the U.S. administration and what they were doing and how they reacted. You know what? That's the kind of thing that, you know, from, from our viewpoint here north of the border of the U.S., you know what? Get a big bowl of pot. Popcorn and you can just laugh because, again, when people start turning around and have a national correction like that, you have to wonder what the source was. And, of course, with the Canadian market, we have different rules and regulations in place. And so the idea of having a mortgage at 120% of value is absolutely impossible. Uh, You know, the secondary lenders are not allowed to go up that high. You know, this is the thing. Appraisals are an amazing thing, but when they're doing it blindly without appraisals, they don't know where the market value is and they do speculation on it. This is what gets people in trouble. Hey, speaking of trouble, if you want to stay out of trouble when owning investment real estate, you know what? Join us uh, coming up on Thursday, May the 26th, for our Simple Seminar. Um, It's the last one before the summer, folks. If you're thinking of owning investment real estate now is the time interest rates are great we've got a fabulous new release out there and for yourselves you know what you can get a great education leave your credit card at home i have nothing to sell you other than giving you an education on what you should be looking at when you are buying investment real estate and you know one of the models that comes up all the time to us of course is the brand new condominium market and what it's uh, what it's doing um, I was just—I uh, was sitting outside the other day, and I was looking up at all the buildings. You know, I was down down here at the station, and I, you know, you see these buildings going up and up and up and up. And um, my fiance and I, we 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 trip over to the Saint Lawrence Market, and we're looking around, saying, "Wow, they just keep building them here and there and everywhere." Um, you know, and almost I almost feel like a Dr. Seuss, um, you know, book when I start talking about the building in Toronto. It, it literally is everywhere. And what the, the main point to this is when we talk about the crash of a market. You know, it's got to come down to, you know, something economical. For instance, if the Bank of Canada decided to change the rate overnight by 2%, um, that would have complete catastrophe to to the Canadian economy. Everything would absolutely blow up. So we know, we're pretty sure that they're not going to pull that trigger. So then, what about supply and demand? Because we know the reason for the typical detached home to be going through the roof here in Toronto is because there's absolutely no supply. In fact, when we saw the numbers come out in March, the the amount of units listed was 26% less than last March. And that's huge. Considering we had a record year last year, now we just don't have the inventory. And one of the reasons why is everybody is nervous about pulling the trigger, because if they do sell, then all of a sudden they're high and dry and they have to go out and buy something else. So when we talk about the Canadian condominium market, and more importantly here in Toronto, there's always a new release coming. In fact, every single day, I get emails from the builders saying, saying, hey, Todd, if you can bring some people to buy one of our units, we're going to give you 5 to 7% commission. And I look at that and say, okay, so... If we were selling, if this stuff was selling like hotcakes, the builders don't offer it out to people with real estate licenses. In fact, they are now offering lunches for realtors to go get. And and, and I'll tell you, realtors love free lunches. Okay. They jump on that stuff all the time. And, you know, I'm sure most of you are kind of laughing at me saying, yeah, whatever. Listen, you know somebody offers you a free lunch and they're talking commission. You're going to show up. So when we see this kind of stuff and the builders continue to offer, you know, more than norm because as a realtor, when you go to sell something, you bring a buyer to, to a property, you normally at 2.5%. But now you've got a builder saying, hey, we'll pay you 5%. We're going to give you double the, the, the effort here. And at the same time, all you have to do is show up with your client, have them sign in, and, and you're set. You're good to go. So you know for a reason that the builders are, A, trying to sell the product, get their financing in place so they can build. Now, We heard about the story a few weeks ago about Urban Corp where, you know, they were struggling. They're doing some refinancing, restructuring because they're they're going through the bankruptcy proceedings to be able to stabilize a few things. And last year at this time, you know, they pulled the trigger on a development that they had that was going to be condominium and they yanked it back and went rental on it. And so they gave everybody their deposit back. And of course, most of you that did, you were very disappointed because you get next to no interest. You might've been able to buy a case of beer after leaving your money with them for four years. But ultimately in the end, what ended up happening was they thought it was better for them to roll it out into being a rental property. So if the builders are pulling back and making some things rental, okay, so maybe that keeps a little bit less inventory in the marketplace, but we still have a lot of this stuff being built. There's hundreds of thousands of pending building permits out there. You know, if you remember Stollery's that just sold last year, it went for a massive, massive price because they're basically taking that corner of Young Street and they're going to be building up, and I think they're pushing over 80 stories, which is going to make a massive development. But so we've got all this inventory and what's going to happen to the condominium market? Should we be nervous? My point to this is, unless it is an absolutely outstanding, only one of building, be nervous. You know what? I'm not. Not that guy that's going to sit there and say, yeah, the sky's not going to fall in the condominium market. You know, I, I, I'm definitive in saying that I believe that the detached market in both Toronto and Vancouver are going to stay stable. I actually think the condominium market in Vancouver will stay more stable than the one in Toronto because of the number of building permits. There is a lot more building permits being issued in Toronto. So, with that many building permits being put out in Toronto, we know that eventually we should have an oversupply. Now, of course, earlier in the show, I was talking about some of the rents that are being you know, brought in, and again, it's a negative cash flow if you are going to be an investor, but if you're looking to buy something, the affordability factor is still there. So looking between three and 500000 is the sweet spot in condominiums, and it allows you to own anything from a, well, a shoebox to something around 1,000 square feet maximum. Now, again, this allows people to be front and center, downtown Toronto. It's a lifestyle, um, and it's something that most people are trying to achieve. They don't have to drive into work. They don't have to use their car much. They get to commute. You know, they're in, in where all the attraction is, and look, I get it. You know, I'm pretty sure if I was in my 20s, I'd be thinking that this would be a pretty cool move to do, you know, hang out down here and it'd be a lot of fun. But in the end, the question is, is what can happen to this market? Will it continue to go up? So I kind of analyze it this way. If you buy something for $600 a square foot, we talk about market increases. And let's say you want to go to $700 a square foot. If you're dealing with something that's 60 square feet. So it's got to go up $60,000. So you paid $360,000 for it and you're hoping to get 420 dollars on it. It's going to take a long time and it may not even get there. We could go backwards before we go forwards on this marketplace. I think we're at the teetering point right now for the condominium market. You see, in the resale, you're not going to achieve that number. If you bought at 500, you're not going to match out to what the brand new product is because it's the newest, greatest, brand new thing. So we're not going to see that same increase. So I think we're going to see a little bit of stagnant movement here. Now, of course, some of you, if you've been following the uh, the numbers, you know, we did see a 4% increase in condominium prices and that, That needed to happen because a lot of that stuff that's actually selling is older inventory. We're not talking the new stuff. We're going back four or five years. And if somebody bought something or closed on it four or five years ago and they're doing the first turn, they actually bought it eight years ago. So when they actually bought it, they bought it closer to $300 a square foot. If I was to tell you what I think is a balancing number, I would say $500 is the balancing number for square footage in resale in Toronto. So for those of you that have bought at $300 a square foot, I think you're in great shape. But for those of you that are buying up to six dollars and $700 a square foot, I feel sorry for you. And I'm sorry that it sounds that way. But you know what? The truth is, is that you're going to have a real struggle to make money on this stuff. And be very leery about doing the flip. You know, people that are speculators. And when you come to our seminar, you're going to hear something called an assignment clause. And an assignment clause means that you've bought something hoping that it's gonna close in five years from now and it's gonna go up in value. I wouldn't put, bet the family farm on that one. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. I don't think you're gonna make a lot of money. And when you do something like that, when you do a flip, all of that, you it's not capital gains you have to pay, it's called income tax because if you don't take title. So buying a condominium with the idea of speculating and flipping it, you have to be very cautious. Four to five years from now, who knows where the market's going to be? Life happens. Who knows where you're going to be? But more importantly is whatever gain you're going to get, you have to remember, you're going to pay taxes on it. Now, if you don't sell it and you close it and then try to sell it, that's where capital gains kicks in. But now you've paid land transfer tax, lawyers' fees, and everything else. So there's going to be a taxation there. So think about it. Does it make sense to, to put that money out there for that period of time? Is it going to be worth it now if your down payment doubles up maybe it is worth it but ultimately in the end you have to make this decision does it make sense so my prediction on the condominium market, is going to go flat on us, and it's going to go very flat, and it's, some of it's going to go backwards. And because some of these buildings are very unique, they will not. But I'm going to tell you the run-of-the-mill stuff, the stuff that really isn't the five-star, the, you know, the grands, everything else, the truth is those will not have a lot of legs. You're going to hang off to hang on to that stuff for a long time. And the one thing you should not do is ever think of selling real estate. You should keep it, okay? Keep the supply and demand off the table. If there's a constant demand and not the supply, your values will go up. If you start hammering the market and everybody's trying to roll out of them, you know, it's not a good thing. So what you need to do is focus on refinancing. Again, this is all sorts of stuff that we're going to be talking at the Simple Seminar coming up on May 26th, and you can go to thesimpleinvestor.com to register for that today. Well, you know, it's been a great show today, and I really appreciate... um, my guest coming on, that was uh, that was Kevin Carmichael. You know, great insight on the Canadian market, of course. And, you know, it's interesting, that whole A, B, and B conversation. The question is, when will it happen again? You know, it's one of those things. I don't blame the company. In fact, it's got nothing to do with the company. It's just the world that we live in. Things will happen and if there's a flag to, to the play, everybody's going to jump up and down on it. So, other than that, you know what? We've got another great show planned for you next week. I'll be back at 4pm, of course. I'd like to thank my producer, George Sulfidis, for joining me today, of course. Always great to have him. And at the end, I want to thank you for tuning in to Simply Real Estate. I'm your host, Todd C. Slater. I'll talk to you next week.